Welcome to Media Business Matters, the podcast that explains why recent news in the media businesses matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Entner. In the first interview of our local journalism series, we're proud to welcome Christopher Ali. Christopher is an assistant professor in the Department of Media Studies at the University of Virginia and the author of the book, Media Localism, The Policies of Place which was published by the University of Illinois Press in 2017. Christopher, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Chris, your book was really helpful for framing some of the key areas of this topic for me, and I just want to talk a little bit about the book for listeners who maybe haven't had a chance to read it. Uh, as, a, as an account, it's really impressively broad as a comparison of local media policy in three different countries, the U.S., the U.K., and Canada. And in terms of media content, it is largely focused on local journalism, but in my reading, I think it also speaks to related issues about issues such as national content quotas that are central to some of the developing work that I'm doing right now on Netflix. Can you start us off by talking a little bit about how you define local? And I'll acknowledge that in the book, there are very many ways, and you don't have to discuss them all. But what do you think are really the key ways for understanding what local means? That's a, that's a great question, and, and uh, probably the, the most challenging part um, in the book. And there's this great quote that came out of Canada. It was in a regulatory hearing. It was from a broadcaster, and the broadcaster goes, you know, I want you to understand that there's local, and then there's local, local, and then there's local, 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 local. And I, I love this idea, because I love the idea that we can just constantly say the word local and assume that everyone at the table knows what we're talking about. And I, I think that's kind of how we thought about local media for for a long time, possibly for the existence of local media, right? I, I, traditionally, I think that in the, in the broadcasting sector, how we thought about local media... Um, or the word local was you had a you know a television station that was licensed to a community and it, it was obligated to serve that particular geographic community, right? So what local meant here was a city, a town, a village, some sort of entity, some sort of geographically defined community. What I'm saying in my book is that, okay, that's that's an important definition. Yeah, let's keep that. But how can we push this? How can we expand this? Because we do not just live our lives in one single politically, geographically bound community anymore. What is local to me here in Charlottesville is both what's going on in Charlottesville, but also what's going on in Winnipeg, uh, where I was born and raised. And this, to me, is as local as what's going on in, in, in Charlottesville. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't help uh, broadcasters or regulators very much. But what I'm trying to push us to think about in the book is that we need to have a more expansive conversation about what this word local means, especially in countries where we tend to subsidize local news and local media. Who gets to qualify as a local content creator? In Canada, for instance, the Aboriginal People's Television Network argued that it was local because it was serving a local community, that being Canada's Aboriginal population. Uh, and some politicians agreed that this was a this was a valid definition of local. You know, again, if we think about it in the Canadian situation, is a French language broadcaster local? Now, I'm not saying that they are or they aren't, but I'm saying that these are pushing the boundaries of what we mean by local, and these are conversations that we need to be having if we're serious about thinking through the challenges and opportunities of local news in a digital age. Mm, that's great. One of the things that surprised me and that I found really interesting was the concept of social localism, which may fit some of the examples you just mentioned. 
And I, as I was reading, I was thinking, well, I think when I talk about those, that phenomenon, I often use the word niche. And I, I wonder if you had a particular reason for not using niche or what distinction you might draw between the concept of local and niche. Yeah, um, I, what I tried to do is not impose my own definitions of local, but it was when other actors were, were kind of marshalling the language of being local. So again, APTN saying that they're local because they serve an Aboriginal population, um, French language broadcasters doing the same, or Welsh language broadcasters in the UK doing the exact same thing. Um, in, in the United States, I came across examples in Los Angeles where uh, community residents were saying, well, if the television station or the newspaper uh, gave us content about Mexico, that would be local to us. Um, and there's this great book by um, Hess and Waller called Local News in a Digital World. And they talk about the idea of geosocial news. And and um, I kind of wish I would have consulted this book or this book had been released before my book had been released, because then I, I would have cited them a lot more than I do. Uh, because it kind of picks up on this idea, the idea that what is local to a reader or to a viewer um, can be very can be very different than this kind of rather old school stodgy way we think about local. So yes, I mean these could also be defined as niche. Um, we could also, you know, in Canada we would often put them under the, the umbrella of ethnic broadcasting or third language broadcasting, th- third language media. Um, you know, we can define them by their by their language groups or by by interest. But the the reason I'm calling it local is because these actors themselves are calling it local. And that to me was really interesting. And that's, that's what helped me build my argument that we may need to push the boundaries of what we mean by local in the digital age. So your book focuses more on policy and less on revenue models. Are all the entities that you looked at for ad supported or are there opportunities for pure subscriber funding as well? Just for all of your uh, all of your listeners um, out there, my book primarily concentrated on broadcasting, and one of the really interesting questions uh, was, is the question of public broadcasting. In the United Kingdom and Canada, both the CBC and the BBC do not have a local mandate. Their mandate is national, right, to reflect this kind of national identity. What does it mean to be Canadian, right? What does it mean to be British? And, of course, these these networks are made up of local stations, which sometimes do local content, local news, etc., but they don't have an explicit local mandate. This differs from... Uh, the Carnegie Foundation, when we thought about the origins of public broadcasting as a system here in the United States, which was actually originally meant to be a local system, right? And so I think, again, this is one of the situations where regulators, policymakers, you know, the powerful, the not powerful, we need to be thinking about what it means to be local. Because if if local news, and this is something I argue in my book, um, is a market failure, right? There's just not enough money to support local news. So what is the role of public broadcasting in providing local news here? Is it just that they provide it on a one-off? You know, this station does it or this station doesn't do it? Or should they be legislatively or mandated by by regulation to provide X amount of local news? Um, Again, the BBC uh, has to provide X amount of regional news. In uh, in Canada now, post-publication of my book, there is an obligation for the CBC to do local news as well. But should this be written into, for instance, the part of the Broadcasting Act that governs the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation? Moving on to the United States, um, I really argue that that PBS can play a, a huge role in kind of resuscitating local news, especially in rural areas. I mean, there are 365 public television stations in this country, and only 14 of those have a regularly scheduled newscast. 
this is ridiculous. There's a huge amount of infrastructure available here. Um, now, I know there needs, there's, there's money considerations, there's po political situation, but there's a huge amount of infrastructure that uh, we can marshal to, quote-unquote, save local news. What role do you think public radio has to play in this? You brought up public television and PBS, but there's also um, public radio and NPR, which does seem to be more news-based. Absolutely. And you know what? NPR, NPR on the local level frustrates me so much because some of it is so good. And they keep trying these things. Uh, in 2011, they actually tried launching uh, these local journalism collaborative centers, uh, particularly in the Midwest, um, and they would focus on particular issues. There's one in Kansas, for instance, that, that focused specifically on health. There's another one that focused on the environment, really about local areas. What frustrates me a little bit about NPR, there seems to be a lack of sustained commitment to the local. And I think especially now in contemporary political climates, uh, NPR is, you know, spending a lot of resources covering national politics. But I, I, again, I think NPR does a much better job than PBS does in, in local news and information, absolutely 100%. I just find that they're, they get on the local bandwagon and then they fall off the bandwagon. They get back on the bandwagon, they get so excited and they have these centers and they got some money and then we don't hear anything about it. A great example is WHYY in Philadelphia which uh, you know, started this website called Newsworks, which originally was supposed to focus on the seven poorest zip codes in Philadelphia. Uh, and when all is said and done, Newsworks ended up launching, it ended up just being a general local news website for Philadelphia. And you know, it's fantastic, but again, kind of an example of how NPR's ambitions sometimes don't match what ends up happening. How much of that should be on NPR as a national entity, and how much of that should be on the stations themselves? You know, I would love to see every NPR station do a deep dive in local, 100%. I think what frustrates me about NPR as a network, again, they're the ones that are pushing these kind of commitments to the local, right? And then those are the ones that are backing off as well. So the local stations are doing what they do great, which is the local reporting. Uh, but when it comes to these kind of systematic programs to to bolster local news that's happening at the at the national level and then kind of trickling down and that's where i think we're seeing um some discontinuity and and that's what's kind of making me frustrated um as an observer of local news so i have sort of a, a, a nerdy academic question and it's it's also somewhat heretical wait so. nerdy academic <laughs> things on this podcast i love it, I love never, it. Yeah. it never happens and, and and i'll deny that i'm even saying this but in ways, this this question that's been nagging at me for a while came up again as I was reading your book, and it's this question of, you know, as critical media scholars, have we focused too much on questions of ownership instead of talking about things like content and content quotas? And, and just to explain what I mean, you know, I feel like it's, it's this very easy knee-jerk argument. We need, you know a diversity of ownership. Um, and, and in principle, yes, absolutely. But given what we've seen happen in terms of market conditions, you know, we may have in a market three different owners, but they're all doing the same thing um, and not doing it particularly well. Um, and I just wonder if in some ways you've thought about this question of by placing in the U.S. particularly such emphasis on questions of who owns things that we have lost touch of, of what the content even is. 
I have two kind of answers to this. One is a particularly American answer. I guess they're both particularly American in terms of the, the U.S. context. I think as a policy scholar, because of that pesky First Amendment, ownership is the one thing that we can focus on as a concrete policy change. We can't mandate broadcasters to have local news, right? And the FCC has this thing called localism, which it has done an incredibly poor job enforcing, thinking about, studying, chronicling. But by and large, you know, there's there's only a couple of regulatory interventions we can have to support local news or localism in broadcasting, even in print too, actually. So so there's ownership. Uh, of course, there used to be the main studio rule, no longer um, the main studio rule mandated that a broadcaster had to have its main studio located in the community of license. Uh, they don't have to anymore. The UHF discount, which was also meant to provide a diversity of ownership. I've always been, to be honest, a little bit skeptical. Does the idea that that multiple owners necessarily foster or, or engender a diversity of viewpoints? I, I, I agree with you, Amanda, that that's not necessarily the case. I mean, they often repeat themselves. And oftentimes, you know, more and more, we see three stations, three different owners producing the exact same newscast. So how on earth is that diversity, right? But the flip side is that we don't do anything about it because the only intervention we can have in this space is ownership. That's not exactly right. There's more nuance to that. But, but ownership is one of the major intervening aspects we have in, in localism, especially with an FCC that is currently quite hostile to public interest regulation. My, my second response to that is if you would have asked me that question two years ago, I think I totally would agree that we need to shift the conversation away from ownership. I think that critical political economists of the media, which is you know kind of where I locate myself kind of theoretically in our field, has almost obsessed about ownership. That being said, in the last two years, we've seen the rise of Sinclair and we've seen the rise of Gannett. Ownership does matter. And, and I'll give you two examples. Gannett owns almost 400 newspapers. Actually, I think they own over 400 newspapers. And they're gobbling up newspapers in rural America. What they are doing in states like Louisiana and Wisconsin is that they are centralizing uh, editorial control into these hubs. So a lot of these papers are basically just becoming bureaus. Right? So they're losing this kind of local autonomy. They're losing this local connection. So it's more like the Associated Press than, say, the local journalists, journalists working themselves? Exactly. I mean, they're still producing stories, right? But they're losing this kind of control over the actual production of their paper. And sometimes they're even losing control over, you know, when you, when you don't have a copy editor that's local, you might change the name of streets, right? Because on a map, a street name is different than how it's used colloquially, maybe. So that kind of like local feel to the actual words that that reporters are using. And and my last project uh, was actually on the state of small market newspapers in the United States. And I did that with the Tau Center for Digital Journalism. And there's a lot of research coming out of UNC Chapel Hill that's also saying that, uh, you know, you've got these hedge funds that are gobbling up local newspapers. And they've been particularly, you know, for lack of a better word, irresponsible to kind of the social good of journalism. They're kind of stripping these newspapers for parts. So we have to be wary about these kind of hedge fund owners. That's on the newspaper side. On the broadcasting side, of course, we've seen Sinclair swoop in, gobble, try and gobble up Tribune and get two laws changed, two regulatory structures changed, that being the UHF discount and the main studio rule that has allowed them to um, to also centralize production. Um, there, of course, are pumping out these kind of must-airs, right? These kind of conservative editorial moments that are 
in the guise of local news, making their anchors read the exact same story, having these inserts that are must-runs. So in that way, these two examples are, are suggesting to me that we are not done critiquing, as critical political economists, the power of ownership in the media system, even still with legacy media. So that's a very long-winded way to answer your question, but I do think ownership still matters. It might matter more than it did five years ago. Yeah, those are all great points. And I, I hadn't really thought through the issue of, of the First Amendment as this regulatory you know, challenge in this situation. I think the when I think about localism and sort of am, am troubled by the situation, especially in an era of various media being disrupted by internet distribution, you know, I see the way the lack of economies of scale just disadvantage local media so significantly that there seems no economic solution if we layer on top of that the, the lack of a policy solution. But I wonder, you know, to your the point about Sinclair, one, one of the things that I've been wondering about there is, you know, actually is that a site in which the local license could be contested on the ground that because broadcasting as it was set up in the states was was meant to be local meant to be station based and that that you do have the centralized national entity you know pushing content out the current FCC aside, because that's just an enormous wild card, but let, let, let's pretend that this was a, a, a more typical FCC. Do you think actually, because yeah. uh, it just seems to me to be a hole in the policy that, that, that the rules were set up sort of to make sure that the stations could push back against their networks, but it's sort of that, that policy never considered having a, a station ownership group that would effectively nationalize. Right. That's, that's great. I, I, I have been giving some thought to this idea of contesting licenses. I think the problem, though, is that the FCC, not this FCC, not the last FCC, not the last <laughs> FCC, but FCC, you know, circa mid-90s, right, made it incredibly hard to contest a license. Incredibly hard. There is no formal procedure anymore to contest a license. You have to know when the license is up. They don't have to advertise it anymore, you know, because it's, it's literally just a postcard now, right? There's no, there's no kind of formal mechanism. So unless you're really in the know, unless you're following these things, and, and maybe actually what Sinclair is doing will galvanize people to follow license renewals, we also have to keep in mind that I think there's only been one station that has lost its license in the last 40 years, right? And that was in the 80s, and that was for airing an incredible amount of racist content. The mechanism to contest legally still exists. I think practically it is it is very, very difficult now to contest a license. You know, and, and maybe, to be honest, what we might see is maybe not, you know, kind of viewers and audience members contesting the license. We might see other station groups contesting the license, right, if they, if they want to try and take on Sinclair. But this actually goes back to the question of, of ownership. You know, when you've got these massive companies like Sinclair, right, 215 stations, if you know, if they if the Tribune deal ends up going through, it's it's harder and harder to take these companies on. So not to make too hard of a pivot here, what are the opportunities of digital distribution for local entities? Uh, you know, the the pivot uh, the pivot to digital is good. It still keeps us in the doom and gloom, though. I hate to tell you, and you know, like digital distribution is so hard when we're talking about local because you you know you want to talk about economies of scope and scale. It is so hard to remain sustainable as a, for instance, as a hyperlocal uh, news organization. Television websites 
same thing. They're they're you know they're really struggling. I will give you a bright moment though, which is that in in my research on the future of small town newspapers in America, they're actually doing much much better than their metro or national regional counterparts. And what's leading them toward that? Well, uh, a couple of reasons. One is that they're often the only news voice in the town or even in the county, right? So they kind of have a monopoly on news. Two. They have a built-in readership, not a big readership, but a built-in one, and one that's keeping them in the black. Three is that they have not been forced to transition to digital as quickly as the metros have. You know, there's no competition, right? There's no competition for Craigslist in Jordan, Montana. And so they've been able to learn from the successes and failures of, of these larger markets. Um, now, I'm not saying that all is, you know, bright and sunny, but... One of the arguments that we make, and by we I mean my research team at the Tao Center for Digital Journalism, is that we really need to separate the newspaper industry from these metros, you know, for instance, Denver Post, right, which is which is currently uh, fighting its owner, or the Charleston Gazette Mail, which is currently going bankrupt, with the smaller entities. The smaller newspapers make up 97% of American newspapers, but we never hear from them. The fact that the Storm Lake Times, uh, with a circulation of 3,000 weekly, won the Pulitzer Prize in 2017, suggests that they're doing fantastic work, and we need to be hearing some of their stories. Because there is there are success stories at the small town level. Um, and I think we can we can learn from these stories. I wish I could be saying the same thing about local television. You know that you know those are those success stories are few and far between. I, I'm finding that local papers are being are much more innovative than the local TV stations these days, at least in this country. Now we're going to be exploring a little bit more into what local entities are doing in future episodes, but we wanted to pose this question to you as well. So. Are there like local podcasts, local journalism, YouTube channels, or other kind of creative innovations of form like that to try to survive in the digital age? Yes, yes and no. Uh, the success stories that I can point to are actually ones started by legacy organizations. But there are some interesting offshoots. So I, I'd point your attention to something like the Charlotte Agenda. The Charlotte Agenda is a hyperlocal news organization focused mainly on lifestyle, but um, every once in a while does some really great hard-hitting journalism. Um, started by uh, the w- former web developer of the Charlotte Observer, which is the newspaper of record in Charlotte. And they are doing some awesome things on social media. They have, a, they have an incredibly engaging Instagram feed. They're great on Twitter. So they're doing some really cool things. The Klamath Falls Herald and News in Oregon has a monthly augmented reality segment in their newspaper, which is super cool. And the Calhoun County Journal has been doing a lot on Vimeo before it went extinct and doing some really cool video stuff. A lot of, again, I'm you know, pointing to the way that I can answer this question, which is through my research on small town newspapers. There's some small town newspapers doing some really cool digital experiments. And we did a survey, a national survey of small town newspapers in the country, and they are really eager to learn. And podcasting and live video were the two biggest things they were eager to learn about. So I think we're going to start seeing uh, a lot more experiments from small town newspapers in the future. I think that lines up well with the next question, which is, I wonder if you've thought about the way in which existing policy might challenge this sort of what could be called convergence of what have been separate silos. Newspapers are one thing, television is one thing, radio is one thing, internet distribution sort of, you know, evens out those silos and just, you know, to continue sort of the 
anecdotal cases, you know, here in southeastern Michigan, where Ann Arbor is really too far from Detroit to get much attention from, you know, what is the the home of our television market. Uh, And Ann Arbor doesn't really have a functioning newspaper anymore. We've really seen Michigan Radio be the key journalistic entity in the region. And I'll also plug the Michigan Daily as well, the student newspaper. Yes, that too. One of the things that I've I've thought a lot about is the way in which Michigan Radio, which has a a good infrastructure that has been built about around audio, audio storytelling, but it also can easily be that go-to print site, let's say, if I wanted to read a story as well. And and the the way in which those competencies, which used to be so separate now, uh, you do see newsrooms being able to incorporate more than than just one of them. Uh, Is that something that you're seeing? And do you think, though, that the history of policy and regulation that has separated them uh, might discourage that kind of innovation? Well, I think... I think that policy absolutely discourages that type of innovation. The one thing that immediately springs to mind, you know, we're talking about Michigan Radio, is the Public Broadcasting Act. The Public Broadcasting Act says that 87% of all funding has to go to broadcasting. That leaves very, very little for digital innovation. So, you know, scholars like Ellen Goodman um, and myself as well have, have called for, you know, changing the Public Broadcasting Act to think about more in terms of public media which might also allow new new uh, organizations to compete for public funding. I mean, such as it is, right? I know it's not a lot, right? $445 right. Million. But the fact that that funding is so tethered to broadcasting is problematic because it doesn't allow outlets like Michigan Radio to experiment fully, right? Maybe they've got some amazing ideas, but they can't bring on staff because they can't pay them out of the public money coming from Congress. Uh, so that's vexing. When it comes to commercial television, commercial broadcasting, I go back and forth as to is it time to reopen the Telecom Act? My major concern about reopening the Telecom Act, I mean, it was written in 96, so it's probably is time that we revise this, um, especially in an era of Netflix. Um, you know, we see what the European Union has done with putting quotas on Netflix. Canada even debated that as well. Well, Canada kind of did a weird one with uh, one I, I don't particularly agree with, but, you know, so be it. Um, they didn't consult me, so fine. Uh, <laughs> um, Such a drag. The question is, it, opening acts like this in this kind of political climate, what, what do we lose? Are we going to lose any remaining vestiges we have of the public interest? You know, and so, and this was always... Commissioner Michael Copps' concern as well with opening the Telecom Act is once you open an act up, you have the potentially to lose as much as you have to gain. Opening it up would mean that maybe we can start chipping away at these silos. It might mean being able to put net neutrality into a, into a piece of legislation. On the other hand, it might mean eviscerating everything and going the way of New Zealand, where everything just becomes deregulated and it becomes a nightmare for five years. But I, but I think the Public Broadcasting Act is a place to start. I think another place that we could think about how policy can aid digital distribution, as you were saying, Amanda, is is the question of the spectrum auction, uh, you know, which generated hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. And we did see some states, particularly New Jersey, try and push that that money be allocated to a special fund for local news, not specifically for a medium. Here in Virginia, um, 180 million uh, was was raised from from spectrum sales, particularly in Richmond. And that all of that went into a fund for kind of public media innovation called, I think it's called the Virginia Public Media Fund. Um, so we might be seeing some cool things coming out of that. Uh, 
but again, you know, this is you you want to change policy that's uh, that's pushing on the ocean these days. But it's an important push to make, nonetheless. Well, I guess if we don't start making the call, right? Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Another part of the book that I really appreciated was the discussion, and I think it's rare, of you know, actually not just acknowledging local content, but, but evaluating it. For example, acknowledging that a, a local breakfast show isn't exactly you know, a great feat compared to, uh, let's say, local journalism that's investigating you know, government relations and things like that. I often find these evaluative questions are, are, are difficult and, in fact, even entirely left off the page, right? It's, is it local or is it not? Um, as opposed to, is it, you know, really, is it, is it good local content? Are there cases where regulation has effectively encouraged not just local, but actually, you know, something that's meaningfully and valuably local? Well, um, if you look at uh, Canada, Canada has quotas for local news, if you're in a metro market, 14 hours a week. If you're in a small market or a French language market, seven hours a week. Now that doesn't that does include um, breakfast shows, which you're right, I am critical of because broadcasters love to tout how much local they're doing. But a breakfast show is very cheap compared to yeah. in-depth investigative reporting, right? Um, in the same way that a magazine is cheaper than you know in-depth investigative reporting in a newspaper. One example that I can that comes to mind about how regulation has actually well, not actually, but had the potential to do this, is um, the Comcast-NBCU merger. Now, what am I about to say did not actually materialize, but it was mandated in the merger, which was that there'd be a thousand extra hours of local news, both in English and in Spanish. Mm-hmm. Right, that was part of the merger. Just across all the stations owned well, by Comcast? That, that is the vexing part, is that the language was so vague that Comcast was able to amortize it over all of its stations. So it really yeah. amounted to just minutes more than, than a <laughs> substantive improvement. This is why political economists, critical political economists, are still in business, right? To, to point out these discrepancies right. between language and action. Um, <laughs> so, so that's really disappointing. It was suggested to me in, in another conversation I had about a year ago that maybe in the United States, you know, thinking of through... Um, that you know, content regulations are really difficult. But one w- area that you can have content regulation is under a merger condition, right? You can tell mm-hmm. Comcast a thousand more hours of local news as a condition of merger, and we're seeing what was already a hugely consolidated business or set of businesses become even more consolidated. It will be interesting. I, again, I don't think as I think. The three of us have agreed that this FCC isn't going to do much um, on this matter, but there is the potential, right, um, to think through these. And again, I'll point to I'll point to Canada, my home and native land. Canada has something called the Tangible Benefits Package, which is that whenever two media companies merge, ten percent of the value of that merger has to be contributed to what's called the Canadian Media Fund, which is meant to subsidize Canadian production. The rationale being that Canada sits on top of the kind of cultural hegemon in cultural production and Canadians love American content. And so without subsidizing it, there would be no Canadian content. There would not be a Canadian, you know, uh, aside from news and hockey. So, (laughs) so this fund goes to subsidizing Canadian, usually Canadian dramatic production. Why can't we have something like that for local, for local news, right? Right. Can imagine if, what, so AT&T is buying Time Warner for $85.4 billion. Can imagine if 0.01% of that went to a local news fund (laughs) administered by something along the lines of CPB, but not as terrible as CPB? That would be awesome, 
right? Uh, so I yeah. think this is where maybe us as scholars, you know, can can start brainstorming these things and and propose these kind of out of the box proposals that we we garner from our comparative research, which you know sometimes American lawmakers don't usually like looking to out other countries for examples. But this is an this is an instance where I think you know comparative research is could be really valuable to the policy moment. We'd like to end on a question that may very well end up being a bit of a depressing one. <laughs> but one of the things that comes to mind when we're talking about local media, and we brought this up in the opening of the series, is a clip from Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, mm-hmm. where David Simon is on a panel talking about journalism, and he's talking about what happens when no one is watching state houses or city governments mm-hmm. or local business interests. You know, there aren't the newspapers or other local entities to go cover them. So how close are we to rock bottom? <laughs> and is there a way that we could kind of climb ourselves out? Like, are there, and is there hope? Uh, oh, oh boy. Um, okay. So I guess I'm going to answer this by telling a story, which is that I was invited to a summit at uh, the Tao Center in April about the future of local news in New York City, because there is a concern that even in one of the major media hubs of this world, one of the major media capitals, if we're going to use Michael Curtin's term, local news is falling. Very few news outlets have have a presence in, in boroughs anymore. You know, New York Times is really pulled back. WNYC is one of the only ones that is kind of producing actual local New York City news, such as it is. So, yeah, so the question is, can we save local news even if it's hurting in one of the biggest markets in the world? I'm going to say yes, and I'm going to say yes, uh, not just because this is my bread and butter. but <laughs> Or because you want to be optimistic. Or because I want to be, hey, you know what, I'm Canadian, this is what we do. Uh, we're optimistic. As a people, we are optimistic. I think, though, that we are seeing more and more public conversation about this. I think that we are seeing more and more public interest in supporting local news, even if it's a flash in the pan, even if it, you know, is a hyper-local that just exists for a year and produces some stories, you know, they're able to get money for a year. Slowly, 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 we're seeing the philanthropic world move towards supporting more local media and research about local media entities like, uh, like obviously, like the Knight Foundation, Ford Foundation, Tau Center, um, are, are supporting some more local, local work. You know, alongside the kind of constant steady presence of public radio we can't also discount the role that community media is is, is playing in this right i think we're actually going to see a, another moment just like we saw in the 70s uh for community media look at an entity like philly cam in philadelphia uh which fought for 20 years to get on the air um and is now kind of a major presence in that city uh not just teaching people uh, how to use the tools of media, uh, but actually producing some really fantastic content. I mean, in your neck of the woods, right? Grand Rapids, the Rapidian, awesome stuff coming out of there. These are small, small town newspapers, right? Still kicking, mm-hmm. still doing their thing. One of the arguments I'm trying to think about for later projects, and I, I have no evidence for what I'm about to say, so you're going to maybe call me a crappy <laughs> scholar. I think we need to start... It's a podcast, not scholarship. <laughs> um, but I, I want to develop an argument that when we think about local news, the future of local news, we need to think about the long game. I think that we think 
to, uh, you know, I don't know who we is in this case, it's business watchers, it's policymakers. We're thinking too much in quarters. We're thinking too much in profits. Mm-hmm. We need to look at local news, saving local news as a 30-year game. And, and so are we going to save local news tomorrow? No. Are we going to save it in 2018? No. Can we chip it away and, and keep pushing and, and, and keep working and have this kind of long game of the ongoing survival of local news? Yes, we absolutely can. So I think maybe it's just a matter of changing our perspective, and, and maybe that will make us feel a little bit better for the, for the present. Um, and also to find these success stories. You know, I think one of the things that the local news industry does to its discredit is it, and I'm going to use a quote uh, from from one of our uh, respondents in my in my last study, which is, we keep talking about ourselves like we're grandma with one foot in the grave. The local news industry, in, in a number of different media, talk about itself like it's dying. They could do a better job promoting themselves, too, and, and talking about their success stories and sharing their success stories. And this is not to discount the very serious economic problems that are going on um, across local media. But I think that celebrating some of these successes, like the Storm Lake Times, um, can can also help us understand that there's some great things happening, even while other organizations are struggling. I think that's a great place to end. Thank you so much for your time. Chris. Oh, hey, this was this was so much fun. Thank you so much for the invitation. And that's it for this edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to learn more about our show, you can go to amandalots.com and click on the podcast link at the top of the page. If you want new episodes delivered to your feed as soon as they're available, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe on Apple Podcasts and on Google Podcasts. And if you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. It helps new listeners find the show. You can find Amanda Lotz on Twitter at DrTVLotz, that's D-R-T-V-L-O-T-Z. You can find our guest today, Christopher Ali, at Ali underscore Christopher, and you can find me at Alex Entner, that's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back soon with the next entry in our local media series.